Hello. Today we want to explore with you the question of being a Christian and being politically involved. Should Christians simply stay out of politics or is there even a divine mandate for us to be involved in politics, to be engaged? We're also going to be looking in the sermon at how Christians and the church in general have approached this question historically. And by the way, if we acknowledge that there is a place for individual Christians to be politically involved, would we ever see a role for the church as a collection of individual Christians to be politically involved? Is there ever a time when a whole church community could or should engage with a political issue and speak out as one about it? These are very complex questions. Before we go any further, I think it's important that we define what is meant by the term politics. In this message, when I use the term politics, we're referring to the way in which our city and our country is governed. The English word politics comes from the Greek word politica, which literally means the affairs of the city. And what responsible citizen or Christian wouldn't be concerned about how their city and their state is governed? Here are a few more definitions of what politics is all about. Harold Laswell said this, politics is who gets what, when, how. It's my view that Christians should be involved in politics. We should care about how resources are allocated in society. We should care about who has authority and what laws are being promulgated. The thing that Christians tend to disagree about when it comes to politics is how we should go about exercising our influence. In the Bible, there is no single blueprint for how political power should be allocated and how countries should be governed. There are many different examples in the Bible of godly people being used by God in the political arena. I think of Joseph, that former slave who rose to second in command in the mighty empire of Egypt. I think of Esther, that young Jewish woman who was able to influence the foreign policy of a foreign country. In the Old Testament, Israel, God didn't want Israel to have a king. Israel was meant to be a theocracy, a people living under the direct rule of God. But they wanted a king to be like the other nations, and so God gave them a king. And fundamentally, in the Old Testament period, there was some alignment between spiritual leadership and civic government. Often those were one and the same thing. There was an overlapping of civic and religious authority. Many of the great leaders of the Old Testament were great spiritual leaders. I think of David and, to some extent, Solomon. Many of the prophets were really political advisors who operated in and out of the courts of the king. Prophets like Isaiah, Elisha, and Samuel spoke a lot about political matters, as did Jeremiah, and often it got them into trouble. The prophet Samuel was a particularly powerful figure who even rebuked King Saul and exercised authority over him. Sometimes the prophets were hated by the king for constantly critiquing their decisions. I think of Elijah and King Ahab. 
King Ahab gave Elijah a nickname. He was called the troubler of Israel because Ahab regarded him as a troublemaker. But this was God exercising political influence over the king through his prophets. And then we have the example in the Bible of God's people living in Babylon under a foreign government. And there too we see examples of Christians, not Christians, but God's people exercising spiritual authority and civic authority. Men like Daniel, for example. And so in the Old Testament era, there is often an overlapping of civil authority uh, governing the life of the people and spiritual religious authority. When we get to the New Testament, things are very different socio-politically. The context has changed. The Jewish people had a measure of self-rule, but they were very much under the thumb of the Romans. At the time of Jesus, there was nothing godly about the people that ruled the Roman Empire. And the church was weak and powerless when it came to political influence. Interestingly, though, it was when the church was weak and powerless and excluded from all forms of political power that the gospel advanced the most rapidly. Of course, this changed somewhat when the Roman Empire, Emperor Constantine, allegedly became a follower of Jesus. And since the conversion, perhaps, of Constantine, the church and society has had various degrees of influence and power in the political sphere. So what really can we learn from church history? Well, there have been times when the church and Christians have played a, a very significant role in the history of nations. If we think of our own country, South Africa, we know that it was many religious leaders who played a highly significant role in the overthrow of the apartheid regime. Here are some very well-known Christian leaders who played a positive role. Frank Ciccani uh, went on to work in the presidency under Mandela, if I recall correctly. He was the chairperson of the South African Council of Churches. We all know the role that Archbishop Desmond Tutu played in advocating for the rights of all South Africans. Alan Busak was another key figure in the development and founding of the United Democratic Front. And he was a well-known religious leader and the president of the World Alliance of Reformed Churches. Another name that comes to mind is that of Bayes Nordia, who was a minister within the Dutch Reformed Church, who also played a significant role in opposing apartheid. But if we look beyond the borders of South Africa, there are many other examples of Christians playing an important role in politics. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer during Hitler's reign in Nazi Germany. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the leading figures in the confessing church. And tragically, he was hanged by the Nazis on the 9th of April, 1945, just as the war was ending. If we move across the, the channel now from mainland Europe to the United Kingdom, I think of Lord Shaftesbury, who was a 19th century social reformer, who brought about tremendous change in English society to do with child labor and how the mentally ill were treated. Lord Shaftesbury was motivated by his strong Christian faith. 
I think too of William Wilberforce, the British politician and Christian who played a leading role in the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and even further afield. And I hope you've seen the movie Amazing Grace, which is about the life of William Wilberforce. And that just shows how important it is for Christians to be engaged in politics, bringing about change. So certainly history is full of examples of Christians who had a major impact on the world and the affairs of the world through their Christian service and through political engagement and activism. But here are some examples of Christians that wielded great political power, sometimes with not such good results. Pope Innocent III, who became Pope in 1198, he was the most powerful Pope that the empire had ever seen. Every single one of Europe's kings were, were, was under his influence. He was the supreme leader. He was the most powerful person in Europe. And there were other popes that wielded enormous power over even secular society. And we first see the power of the church beginning to diminish uh, in the Enlightenment, that period leading up to the French Revolution, when there was great change of the way people thought about the church and the role of the church in society. And one moment that really stands out as, as illustrating this change, as, as religious power coming to an end in Christendom, was on the 2nd of December, 1804, when Napoleon Bonaparte was, was crowned emperor. And it was the usual ceremony uh, of the day. Uh, it took place at Notre Dame, and Pope Pius VII was there. And Pope Pius thought that he was going to place the crown on Napoleon's head. But Napoleon never wanted it said that he'd got his rule from the church. So as Pope Pius lifted up the crown, Napoleon snatched it from him and placed it on his own head. And that was a, a real symbol of the undoing of ecclesiastical power in Europe. And then, of course, we have other reformers like John Calvin, the famous, the famous Protestant. Uh, he was a pastor in Geneva, but he wasn't just a pastor. And in 1955, he was elected as the supreme leader in Geneva. And he was able to pass many laws, laws against dancing, rowdy singing, gambling, blasphemy, drunkenness, adultery, and naming children after Catholic saints. So here is a taste for Protestants of having real political power. And it's interesting to see how they used it. But closer to home in our day, we have what is known as dominion theology, also called kingdom now theology. And this was a theology and a movement popularized by C. Peter Wagner, who's also considered to be the founder of the new apostolic reformation movement. And in dominion theology or kingdom now theology, the idea is that the church needs to win back from Satan control in society, in the area of the media, the arts, even civic power, government, commerce. And so this is a reinvention, as it were, of Christians desiring political power. 
We also saw 35 years ago in the United States the rise of what was called the moral majority, although we're not always sure just how moral they really were. This was a political movement aligned with the Christian right and the Republic Party, Republican Party, founded by Jerry Falwell Sr. in 1979. And the purpose of the moral majority was to help Christians get their hands on the levers of power in American society. And so the church has a a checkered history, as it were, of being involved in politics. Sometimes, as with Wilberforce and Lord Shaftesbury, with tremendously good outcomes. On other occasions, Uh, The church wielding political power uh, was a bad thing and distracted the church from their task of making disciples and extending the kingdom of God. So on the one hand, we have Christians pursuing political power. And then on the other hand, we have Christian people abhorring political power. And here I think now of the Anabaptists, And probably the best known example would be the the Amish community uh, who want nothing to do with society and with human government. And they're pretty much left to their own devices. So as you can see, Christians have through through the ages had many different approaches to political engagement. From Pope Innocent III being the most powerful man on the planet to the Amish, who, the Amish, who have nothing to do really with the rest of society. They just want to be left alone to follow, follow the Lord. It also goes without saying that each of these groups has a biblical basis in their thinking for the position that they have. So for the remainder of the sermon, I want to share with you seven biblical principles that I believe should guide our political involvement. So here are some biblical principles, seven in all, that should inform our political understanding and involvement. The first two principles that I want to share are really foundational to To the seven in all. And the first principle is this that secular government is established by God. Secular government is established by God. And this is a very important principle. God doesn't expect the church to be running and governing civil society. The church is a unique group of people called together by God. People who have been born again, who believe in the gospel. People who have a spiritual union with the Lord and with each other. The role of the church is to glorify God, to worship Him, to make disciples, and to continue the work of Jesus. Jesus never set out to become the new Roman emperor. That would have been setting his sights far too low. This is what Paul writes about God establishing secular government. It's in Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from Fear of the one in authority, then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is quite a passage and we could preach a whole series on it. But in this passage, Paul talks about how government has been established by God. He says that twice in verse 1. He, in verse 2, he speaks of government being instituted by God. In verse 4, twice he says government is God's servant. And again in verse 6, God's servant. And this is not referring to a government full of Christians or a government governing according to Christian principles. Absolutely not. This was a reference to a secular government, to a government that worshipped idols, a pagan government, the Roman government. At the time of writing, Paul was living in an occupied territory under an, an unjust and ungodly Roman emperor. But Paul understands that human government, as a principle, as an institution, has been established by God. And it is for this reason that Christians are to submit, to show honor, to obey where possible, and to pay tax. So we need to take seriously the role of the state and not confuse the state's role with that of the church. Christians have a duty to support the state in its efforts to do good and serve people. But this one thing we must be very clear on. The church and the state are two very different organizations. And we should never confuse the two. This is the basis for our Baptist principle concerning the separation of church and state. We believe that both human governance and the church have been ordained by God, but they are separate institutions with different characteristics and goals. And whenever Christians have lost sight of the differences and have tried to mangle the two together, we have always come a cropper. The Baptist principle of the separation of the church and the state does not mean that Christians ought not to be involved in politics. Nothing of the sort. It means that we need to keep the two institutions separate and never try to merge them in any way. They, they are separate. This is what the church is about Spreading the gospel, making disciples. And this is what the state's role is. Interestingly enough, with this principle, there is an element of us having our cake and eating it. In that we believe that the government must keep its nose out of the affairs of the church. But that as Christians, we have every right as citizens to address the government about its affairs. The government must never try to control the church, tell us what to believe and how to worship. But as citizens, we have the responsibility to be a prophetic witness to the government. My second principle is this. God's kingdom is not of this world. 
God's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. This is a powerful verse and one that Jesus lived out. Jesus rejected political power when the devil offered it to him. Remember in Matthew 4, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor and said to Jesus, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. When Jesus came riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, the people waved their palm branches and got very excited. They wanted to make him their king. They saw Jesus as, as one who was going to liberate them from the political oppression of the Roman government. They saw Jesus as a political messiah. But it is a role that Jesus rejected. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. Jesus came to establish a new kingdom. The kingdom we refer to as the kingdom of God. And what he was most clear about is that the kingdom of God is entirely different to the kingdoms of this world. It's not just a, a very good version of a human kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. A, a kingdom that we can only see and enter into when the Spirit of God works in our lives and causes us to be born again. Jesus said to, to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. God's kingdom is a, a spiritual reality, and we start to enjoy that reality in this world as we live under God's rule. But in this world, we are sojourners and foreigners, and with Jesus, we too can say our kingdom is not of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. This is the kingdom of God that we are taught to pray for in the Lord's Prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The important point is this. God's kingdom is not just a really good earthly kingdom where there is justice and peace. God's kingdom is something completely different. It is a kingdom that we enter through a spiritual heart change. And it is a kingdom that has at its center the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that he rules. And if Jesus is in front and center and ruling, then it is not the kingdom of God. No amount of political activity can bring about God's kingdom. That's not to say we mustn't do all we can and use all the power and influence we have to bring about a just and free and good society. Of course we must. It is not the equitable distribution of resources that will bring about God's kingdom. That may produce something that looks like God's kingdom, but, but God's kingdom is a spiritual reality. And these two principles show why we believe in the separation of the church and the state. They are not one and the same thing. And we are not working so that the church can become the state or the state the church. Human government has been established by God to bring order and prosperity to people in the world. Justice and fairness. And then there is the kingdom of God, established by God, 
which comprises the new humanity. And it is a community centered around the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It is a community where Jesus Christ is recognized as Lord. Two separate realms, two different communities. The third principle I want to share is this. We are to render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. You'll recall the well-known conversation that Jesus had with some teachers of the law when they came to trick him, to test him. They said, should we pay taxes? What is your opinion? Verse 17 of Matthew 22. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus takes the, the coin and says, now whose face is this? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. If a coin bears Caesar's image, well, then that's part of his domain. But if you personally are made in God's image, well, then that belongs to God. But there's a broader principle here when it comes to rendering to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And it's the principle of recognizing what a government's responsibility is and responding accordingly. We're privileged to live in a democracy and we have so many rights and privileges and opportunities. We are able to be involved in government and in the political life of our city and our nation. And so we should render to Caesar what is Caesar's. When the government asks for public participation, we should participate. When laws are being written, we should make our voices heard. This is part and parcel of what it means to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Fourthly, we are to pray for those in authority. We are to pray for those in authority. Prayer should inform our political engagement and involvement. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, I urge you, this is important, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings, for those in authority. And here's why. So that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So in this verse we're being encouraged to pray for those in political leadership, whatever they their titles might be. But we're also told why we're to pray for them. It's so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives, so that we can enjoy freedom, and so that the gospel can, can spread, because God desires for all people to be saved. The government has a very specific role in society. So praying is, a, is, a, is another way in which Christians are to be involved in bringing influence and change in the political sphere. But we're not just to pray. In addition to praying, Jesus tells us, and here's principle number five, we are to be salt and light in society. We are to be salt and light in society. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth. Later on, he says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't put your lamp under a bowl. Instead, put it on a stand so that it can give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men. Jesus says that we are to be salt and light 
in society. Let's start with light. Light helps people to see where they're going, to make sense of what's happening, to fix problems. We often need light shone on the problem. Light, when you're in a dark room, stops us tripping over things and hurting ourselves. Light can warn people about danger. I think of a light house. But light can also draw people. I think of a, a city on a hill that a lonely traveler sees. You're, you're drawn to the light. It, it offers security and you're glad to be there in the light. Christians are the light of the world. We're meant to be guiding society. Shedding light on what's happening in society. We ought to be that city set on a hill. Not hiding our light under a, under a, a saucer. But making our light uh, accessible and, and useful to people. Jesus also said we are the salt of the earth. Salt was used to, to preserve things. To stop things from rotting. Christians are to be those in society that, that sanitize and that prevent corruption. We are the salt of the earth, preserving and, and keeping decay at bay. Jesus' labeling of his followers as salt and light can be seen as a call to political activism. The church is meant to be salt and light in society. And by the way, Christian morality is not just for Christians. There's been this debate, is, is Christianity and is your faith something you just do in private? Or, or does God want us to actually live out our faith? And the answer is the latter. Christian belief and practice is not uh, for reserved for the privacy of your own home. We are to live out our Christian faith boldly in society. And there's often pushback when people try to do this. Just a, a couple of weeks ago, we had our very own Chief Justice, Mugheng Mugheng, who got into a lot of hot water with some people by expressing certain views uh, about the nation of Israel. We, but I believe he has every right as a Christian person to practice his faith. In the United States, we've, we've seen the confirmation to Supreme Court justices of two conservative uh, candidates, Judge Kavanaugh and Judge Amy Coney Barrett. And some people have opposed their nomination, saying, but these people can't serve as judges. They're Christians. They have certain beliefs about morality. And, and that's ridiculous because everybody has beliefs. And we can't exclude people from serving in public office, from doing their jobs well and in keeping with the law, just because they happen to believe God's word and are practicing Christians. I just share that to make the point that we need to accept that our Christianity is, is for society and for the public domain. Our Christian faith is not something just to be practiced in private. And Christian morality is not just for Christians. The Ten Commandments, for example, thou shalt not steal, isn't just an idea that applies to Christians. John the Baptist certainly believed that even God's views on, on divorce and remarriage had relevance to, to secular people, which is why he called out the political ruler and lost his head because he did so. John the Baptist believed that God's principles, God's truth belonged in society and that God's moral principles don't just apply to Christians, but to all. 
One way in South Africa where we need to be being salt and light is by fighting corruption. The Lord hates false scales, Proverbs tells us. In Proverbs 14 verse 34, we read that righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a disgrace to any people. Proverbs 28 tells us that when a country is rebellious, it has many rulers. A ruler who oppresses the poor is like a driving rain that leaves no crops. Verse 15, like a roaring lion or a charging bear is a wicked man ruling over helpless people. When the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. The Bible is fully aware of the devastating consequences of corruption and of what can happen in a society when the wrong people have authority. Here's biblical principle number six. We are to seek the peace and prosperity of our city. We are to seek the peace and the prosperity of our city and our nation. The context here is that of the Babylonian exile. God's people were living in a foreign society. Many of them would have felt disenfranchised, excluded. They, they, they were alienated. They were probably angry for having been conquered by the Babylonians. Their city in Jerusalem destroyed. Their way of life destroyed. And God's word comes to these exiles in Babylon. And God says to Jer through Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says to you who I have carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You need to build houses, settle down, plant gardens, get married, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Have children, make a life for yourself. And verse 7 Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for the city, because if it prospers, you will prosper. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Here again is a message for us. Let's do all we can to help our city and our nation to be successful, to be governed well. Because when our city and our nation does well, we all do well. We all rise and fall on the same tide. Earlier I made the point that politics has much to do with economics. Who gets what where? Who gets what slice of the pie? How do we allocate resources in a society? And these are issues that Christians should be involved in. We should be seeking the peace and prosperity of our citizens and our nation. Because if it does well, we will do well and vice versa. And my seventh principle is this. And I haven't left it to last because it's unimportant. Far from it. We are to look out for the vulnerable in society. Helping the weak and the poor and the disenfranchised and those struggling in society should be dear to the heart of Christians. The Bible constantly reminds us to take special care of the poor and the marginalized those with special needs. Deuteronomy 15 says, when you're living in the land your Lord is giving you, there might be some poor people living among you. You must not be selfish. You must not refuse to help them. You must be willing to share. Give to the poor in your land who need help. 
And in that great passage, Isaiah 58, which is really a call to political involvement, God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is the kind of religious activity that I want to see. Not, not fasting and sacrifices. This is what I want to see. It's to loose the chains of injustice. To set the oppressed free. To break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? To provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe him. Christians have a mandate to be involved in trying to solve the social problems of our day. The Bible commends us when we spend ourselves, verse 10, on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Then our light will rise in the darkness. And Isaiah says in verse 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy you. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden. Jesus also taught us the importance of social action in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan, where it is a person who is in need uh, who is of another race to the person who walks by, the Samaritan, who helps. And Jesus says to us, go and do likewise. If you see somebody in need, even if they're different to you, help them and you will be blessed. So as I wrap things up today, we see from church history that the church has struggled to find the right balance in terms of political engagement. There have been times when the church has not been involved enough in the politics of the day. And then there have been times when the church has clearly overstepped the boundaries between the two spheres that God has established, government and the church. So let me recap the seven principles I've shared with you today. Number one, secular government has been established by God. It is a separate sphere. And the church shouldn't try to take on or take over the role of the state. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that the authorities that exist have been established by God. They are God's servant to do us good. Second principle, very important. Jesus tells us that his kingdom, the kingdom he is building, and the kingdom he wants us to be involved in building, is a kingdom that is not of this world. It is a kingdom that one enters through being born again, through repenting of our sins, and through having faith in Jesus. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that has Jesus Christ as its Lord and front and central. That's how you know the difference between the kingdom of God and a human kingdom. It's all about the role that Jesus is playing. Thirdly, we are to render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. This is an invitation and a responsibility to engage with the state in the ways it asks us to. Fourthly, we are to pray for those in authority. Fifthly, we are to be salt and light, to preserve society, to stop society becoming putrefied. We are to, to shine the light of the Lord. Sixthly, we are to, to actively seek the peace and prosperity of our city. We mustn't be aloof to our city and the people that live in it. Rather, we need to engage with our city and do what we can to make our city and our nation successful. And seventhly, we are to look out for the vulnerable in society. The poor and the needy are dear and near to God's heart. 
James reminds us in the New Testament, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. There is a call to help the needy in society, in this case widows and orphans, but also a need to be holy. So should followers of Jesus be politically involved? And the answer is absolutely yes, because God cares about people. And politics is all about people and the affairs of the city. There have been times when the church has got it wrong. And they've got too involved in the affairs of this world. And they've lost the distinctiveness of their Christian faith. And there have been other times when the church has lost out on great opportunities to influence society. We've been called to be salt and light. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our country, for the city in which we live. And we pray that you would help us to be responsible citizens and spirit-filled Christians. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being part of your kingdom. We know that our citizenship is in heaven and that we are just sojourners here. That this world is not our own. We're in the world, but not of it. And we pray, Lord, that you would guide each one of us as to the specific role we can play in seeking the peace and prosperity of our city, in helping the marginalized, in being salt and light. To this end, we commit ourselves and we, we pray for the anointing of your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.